Welcome to another episode of Thoughts of a Trillionaire. It is 9.40 a.m. And today I want to talk about a whole lot of things. A whole lot. So I want to cover, you know, what I did yesterday, of course. Um, getting into some cool stuff that I did with the uh, BTMP or the <laughs> concerns that I had. As well as, you know, um, my own, some. I'm not going to say breakthroughs, but at least like new things I've I've. I dated, ideated about my business. I want to talk about the idea of zero IP, of having, of kind of getting away from intellectual property. I want to talk about this, uh, yet more about U.S. design and and why and how. You know, Debbie made another article about uh, U.S. design and how evangelizing does not work. And I want to talk about a little bit about that. I want to talk about bias and how you know. Um, based on uh, Vsauce's episode of, uh, it's called uh, The Future of Reasoning, I think it was called. And he was talking about how bias is actually kind of what we're built for and why, why, why it can be a good thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's the main stuff I want to talk about. So let's get into it. So um, yesterday, it started with uh, me kind of having... Again, this this problem of, of feeling feeling stuck, or at least feeling like there wasn't enough meaning. I, I don't want to say meaning in my life, but like I just didn't feel good about myself, right? <laughs> and um, by talking it through with my partner, my a wonderful significant other, you know, I was able to to get to the point, get to the heart of the situation, which is that I feel like I don't have enough connections enough like holistic connections around who I am I know I'm a a multi I guess a multi-potentialite is the, is the term <laughs> that's seen in one of these TED talks where I'm interested in a whole lot of things right I have a huge amount of curiosities and interests and it, and it goes deep fairly fairly deep into a number of different areas um, but it feels like I can't really talk about those things with a lot of people with anyone in my life Right? I'm super grateful and appreciative of the connections that I do have and the depth I can go you know, with these people. And I could talk about a number of things with them. But I can't, I, I often feel like I can't bring my whole self to the table in most of my relationships and pretty much all of my relationships, right? Where I might be wanting to talk about something, but they're obviously not interested in it or, you know, Maybe they have their own concerns if we talk about that or, you know, it's just, I just can't, I just feel like I can't bring my full self. And this is, this has been a problem for a long time. Like I wrote a whole blog article where I was like, where I put in the title, starving for conversation. <laughs> and I would just write about things every single day about things I want to talk about with other people. <laughs> um, and that didn't really go anywhere. It was, it was, it was fun for a little bit just to get my ideas out of my head, but. I never found anybody to talk about these things with, you know, and that was years ago. That was like in 2016, 2017 or something like that, right? So this has been a long-standing problem, but has been just one of many problems, right, of a number of other areas during that time. Like that time was a really rough for me in 2016, you know, we were struggling with like whether or not we're going to live on the street, you know, <laughs> you ended up all having to live in this one small room in our cousin's place and all this other stuff. It's just... It was really rough, but you know that was why. That's why, like, 
it wasn't a huge concern because there were so so many other bigger concerns. Um, but now, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this I'm in a much better situation. You know, we have our own place. Well, not I'm talking about my family, not me. But you know, my family has our own place now. Um, I have a great relationship with my you know significant other. I have some some network going on, some friends. You know, I'm building on uh, some skill sets that I'm building on. You know, things are looking up. Finances are getting a little bit better. Things are looking up. And so this leaves, you know, this one remaining place where I feel like I really want to have that connection with somebody else who is interested in a number of these things that I want to talk about, that I want to work on. You know, when I look at folks like Lex Friedman, that's why I get so, I'm like so so enjoy his podcast and his stuff because he he, he talks about so many things and, and these are a number of the things that i like to talk about that i want to go deep into that that i like to you know research about or, or think about every single day and it's just so so awesome to see that and you know he's the type of person i would love to be friends with uh kevin kelly is another one you know he's a futurist um he talks about it but he, like unlike other people who might be a futurist in one direction <laughs> he talks about a number of things everything from culture to technology to you know um computers to to everything right <laughs> um and it's, it was really it's really enjoyable to to see his videos and see him talk about all these things and um i would love to be friends with him as well you know so i know there's people out there that are similar to me in that they have a number of interests and 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 curiosities and expertise and stuff like that and these are the type of people that i would love to get to know more that i would love to befriend um and so that's kind of i think that's what i'm going to set my goal as going forward um and i'm glad I, I i did finally figure this out because i wasn't really sure what was going on like why i was feeling so not exactly down but like just disconnected or you know, even though I had, again, even though I have some great relationships with people, I really enjoy the friendships that I do have, right? But I still felt just, just disconnected. I just didn't feel complete. And so, um, yeah, figuring that out has really gave me a sense of direction um, with that. So I'm going to, I'm going to like just email these people. I'm like, hey, I, li- I like your stuff. Can we be friends? <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to say a lot more than that, but. That's the general, you know, thing I'm going to start doing. Um, And we'll see where it goes. You know, maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But at least I'm trying. And also, you know, talking on this podcast, hopefully, might bring some other people toward forwards. So we'll see. But, yeah, that's that's a lot of my morning. After that, you know, talk had a great conversation with one of my mentors, um, Ube. And, And interesting enough, we ended up talking about that similar idea of, you know how you can bring your good your your full self to the work environment or to any situation and he spoke about how sometimes you can't bring your full self like in a in a or in a corporate organization you know where you're working with these other folks that may <laughs> they're often not diverse you you can't really bring your full self and that's very unfortunate um but that's just how it is right and i know he he tends to be a little bit cynical in that in that aspect um, but he's also realistic like he's lived the situation for the last you know 20 years or so um he's an amazing person and uh i understand that his experience is his experience but you know his it's still a data point right and it's still it's still a good thing to keep in mind that sometimes you can't bring your full self to the to an organization 
and you just have to you know get your you have to find a lease or a another way for you to you know um to bring that full self out and i think for ube he does that by you know doing these mentorship things and and um trying to do uh, things outside of work and and not connecting himself too closely to work like he doesn't he considers himself as a like a consultant even though he's working full time there and stuff like that right and um that makes sense and that also leads into the next thing i was doing <laughs> it just all happened to you know start connecting the dots with me is that this this harkens back to um yesterday's i think it was yesterday's episode where i was talking about you can't ban politics at work because this very same reason right like your idea of politics may be somebody else's reality like if i'm a diverse person like if i'm if i'm from a different stance than you are from for instance i'm you know black (laughs) i'm haitian american i'm this that and the other and so there's certain considerations that i have to take into to, to fact like i have to take into consideration that you don't right and you may consider that political by talking about it but that's just my reality so if you say you're banning policies you can't talk about you know race you can't talk about the problems of religion you can't talk about you know these things at work then that means i cannot bring my full self because these are my life right these are things about myself that i I simply can't talk about and so you know that 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 goes in that same topic um but the reason why this relates to something that I that I think I can help with is is um so during my my uh after that call I had ended up having to create a oh no no that's not what happened well we'll, we'll get to <laughs> how this all brings together but let me speak on some other things first that happened so after that call I went to a live stream of a um alt space meetup for this organization I'm kind of you know watching called Learning Pathmakers where they're trying to create, you know, this idea of data dignity and data sovereignty, where you can own your data. You know, they're centered around specifically around education and, and teaching kids, you know, these things. But they have the, a larger mission of, of doing that in general, right, of data dignity and data sovereignty, where instead of companies or um, schools or anything like that, having the monopoly on your data and having or being the only ones that that can really see what's going on with you and your behaviors and all this other stuff and only like giving you a little report card or a little terms of service right (laughs) as your only kind of viewpoint into that data instead they're talking about how can we create futures and worlds and schools where you actually can have ownership over your data We, we can actually see for instance in the education standpoint you know your learning behaviors and and your learning um context right like you can see how you learn and and uh what has been good for you what has been bad you know what what other difficult subjects or this that and the other and you can take advantage of that like you can actually see in front of you where you go wrong and where you go right or this that and the other all right that this, this gives you greater greater control over how you learn and by extension in, in the larger scheme of things this gives you greater control of how you go through the world right like if you can apply this principle to any app to any software where instead of them just taking your data and just tracking you along the web you can actually see okay liking this things liking these things on facebook or you know having these interactions or clicking these ads you know this is the type of behavior that it that it signals you know this is the type of 
uh, a thing that people are seeing. This is the type of thing that companies, you know, are seeing about me. And, you know, when it when it when you put this together with my demographics, with my geographics, I guess that's related. But, you know, all these other things, when you put this together with this other larger data scope, this is, you know, the type of this is what they get. And you can have ownership of that. You can then, you know, give that to the to, to customers if you want, or you can keep it to yourself. But the point is, with that data dignity, that data sovereignty, you have more power. You have more power over yourself. You're self-empowered. <laughs> and that's a good thing, right? That's the type of world that we want to live in, where we are actually self-empowered. We, we have control over our identity, where we can say, okay... We can understand why the algorithm is giving us certain recommendations. We can understand why the Google search results are, are you know, the, the results that they are, right? We can recognize that these results are subjective. They're not the same results that somebody down the street will get. They're not the same result that somebody across the country will get. But we can understand why they're different. And so we're not over here guessing of whether or not we have been manipulated. We're not guessing of... You know, are they trying to make us, you know, believe something, a certain thing? Are they trying to, you know, hide away other things? We can understand, okay, this is, this is why they, they gave me these results. And then you can self-correct. You can correct, okay, you, you can say, okay, I don't want to see, you know, this crap. Like, this is not relevant. Because these machines aren't good. These, these machines do not understand context, right? We can't build any AI that, that understands context yet. That's going to take a lot more effort, a lot more data. And, and... Data by itself is not the, not is not really the the solution, right? So I can go deep into that anyway, you know, later. But probably another episode because I've talked about this a little bit before. But yeah, that that idea of data dignity, data sovereignty is, is incredible. Some other cool things they did is they were in alt space, and they had a three hundred and sixty environment of Washington D.C. So the alt space digital like virtual world was was on like a map of a park in dc and then around the park was these little 360 bubbles of um photo captured areas in washington dc so they can walk into a bubble and have all around them a 360 capture of like this sh- of a specific street or a specific building and that was incredible that was really cool to see um like before you seen you may have seen Google Earth for instance where it's a you know the whole thing is just a 360 capture but in this you know implementation in alt space it was a virtual environment so the environment itself was created by somebody but around it it was surrounded by th- actual pictures of the real world and that's really that's really awesome um that that goes into the idea of uh kind of like holograms in your virtual world and this that and the other um, and I've seen I, I've, I've seen the mixed reality uh, stream that they had for for Microsoft and HoloLens, um, showing you that you can do something like this in HoloLens. I mean, in, in, in alt space. But it was cool actually seeing an event, you know, do this already. So um, yeah, that was that was pretty nice. So yeah, that that's what I did there. And after that, I had a talk with uh, you know futurist folks. Got set up with my accounts and all that stuff. And I'm excited for that, but I just want to mention that Microsoft is is is, is insane. Like, <laughs> I didn't even realize they expanded so much. Like, the Microsoft Office suite is more than just you know words, docs, access, and all this other stuff. 
it's they, they also have these teams which I I've heard about but I wasn't I haven't like been into yet. Um, so this is my first time, and just to see it all put together is, is was really interesting. But it was also really concerning because it's really bad user experience. Like it's it's bad. Like <laughs> she was trying to uh, invite me to like their SharePoint, but even though I'm on the team, you know I would they have a sidebar where you can see like SharePoint. OneDrive, all this other stuff, and I cook. I would cook SharePoint, and then it's it goes to like a whole like a template, like a like a personal template. Even though I'm on their team, she had to give me the the specific link for me to access their SharePoint. Even though I would I was set, and then when I go to that link, I would hit follow. So technically, it should show up on my page, so I know you know I can access it later. But there's no way to access it later. There's like I can't I couldn't find where I could access that same link. Even though I followed it. And it, and that was just one of many, many, many examples I saw. You know, just at first glance. I'm like, dang, Microsoft, what in the world? Like, this is the great example of, of my concerns with big business. With the fact that once you get to a certain size, it seems counterproductive. Right? It seems ineffectual. Where you're creating more problems than you are creating solutions. Like the idea of having a a centralized workplace online makes sense and was easy to access, you know, this, this, that, and the other. But the the implementation is absolutely terrible. Like you can actually see that it was designed by different people, by different different teams within that organization. And each team like had a different thing. (laughs) It was interesting because just, just that morning, just yesterday morning, I read, I was reading in that information architecture book how that same problem happens with information architecture when you have a website right with a number of things you have primary navigation secondary uh, navigation and then tertiary navigation or or contextual navigation and the primary navigation you can have like some some drop down menus or some you know some uh what you call it like the fat uh nav bars i forgot what's called the specific term but Basically, when you when you hover over or click, you know, one of these, na- the primary navigation option has a drop down of a number of other sites you can go to, and then these sites are like subsites. You know, sometimes it goes to the actual page, but sometimes it might be a subsite. So, for instance, um, it might be. Uh, I forgot. Dang, I forgot the exact example they had. But say, for example, you're on. Um, oh yeah, GE, right? Like GE. They have a, a site for engineering and another site for energy and then another site for um, appliances, right? Each of these are different subsites. But the problem here is that sometimes with certain companies like GE, each subsite is completely designed differently, has a completely different, you know, information architecture. And so what you you might go to the uh, the home GE site and have an idea of how the site works and then you click over to GE aviation or GE engineering and they have a completely different setup and you have to relearn everything so it was obviously designed by a whole different team with with little to no say about the from the original team that created the original home site and and this creates you know <laughs> like yes granted the sub site the sub team you know they might have specific issues or specific problems but when it differs so widely from the home project, then you wonder why it's even associated. Like the only reason why it's associated is because it's a big team. 
is because they make a lot of money as a big brand, right? And they could just just put it all together in one area, and it's just it's, it, even though it's hacked neat together, even though it doesn't actually fit together, they just put it together because they can, <laughs> right? And I was like, man, this is this is this is terrible. Um, and you claim that hey, big business, big big ideas, it allows you to do bigger projects, it allows you to do bigger things. But how many times have we seen where these big projects, these big teams, are actually more disorganized than if you just had a a, a number of small thing, small teams working together, you know, on a set standard? Because in a big team, you have this problem of politics, you have this problem of, you know, a, a competing interests who are all trying to do the quote unquote the same thing, but are trying to do it very differently, who have different priorities. Even though it's even though it's the same organization, but with the number of small organizations working together for a common cause, they oftentimes recognize that they have different goals, they have different priorities, right? But their overarching goal is one such that it is created to encompass all of their different priorities, so that they can share their priorities together and they can make a more cohesive thing. Right, and this actually goes into how teams are 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 are, are built. Um, shoot, I'm terrible with names, but I saw this uh, this video about how this dude creates design teams. He works at GitHub now. Before, I think he was working at Atlassian. I think it was, or I forgot the other company. But he works as a number. He worked at a number of big companies. He was talking about how he builds his design teams. He was pointing out how, you know, you don't build a design team by by hiring everybody that does the same thing. You hire for different skill sets. You see how they interact with each other. So you can fill out your entire team. So, for instance, you might have people who are good with research, people who are good with interaction design, people who are good with visual design, people who are good with engi- like front end um, design, web, web design, type, that type of thing. Right. Each of these are a different skill set. So based on what your actual needs are for the business for at that time, you can determine, okay, we need this skill set, this skill set, this skill set. And you don't want to hire somebody who does all of these things, or at least, you know, depending on your budget, right? You need to recognize that if you want to hire somebody that does all of these things, you're going to be paying a lot more than for a person who does one of these things or, or two or three of these things really well, Right? So he even pointed out that in a startup, sometimes you can only hire one or two people, right? So you need to find people who, are, who cover a number of these areas. And so you have to recognize that you're probably going to be paying them more, either in options in like stock or in, in actual pay. And that's, that's why you need to recognize these things. But as your team builds out, you realize, okay, we need our, our, our needs have changed. We need these things instead. And so we need to hire people who are in these specializations instead, right? And so your your hiring needs are dynamic. They change. But at the same time, they're always specialized. They're always focused on what you actually need and realizing, making trade-offs to determine, okay, you know, we have the budget for more people that are more specialized. And so you can hire somebody for, for front-end engineering and then somebody else for um, interaction design and somebody else for visual design and together they form a cohesive team and so what you're actually looking for is number one can they work together and number two can they grow and learn 
can they learn a little bit about each other's things in order to, you know, as a whole, grow together and work together more efficiently, right? That's what you're actually looking for. Likewise, we see this with businesses, with larger teams and larger organizations. When you're forming a, uh, an, organiza- or an organization with a number of teams, like marketing, design, uh, engineering, uh, sales, all this stuff, they're obviously working on really different things. They're obviously working on really different things. But you hire them to see, can they work with each other, right? Do they each have their own specialties? And in doing so, you create a better organization. So I can go into what I you know, read about. Uh, geez, there's so many things to talk about. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go into it. So this, this goes into... <laughs> These segues um, goes into what I read about, you know, Debbie's article this morning about how evangelizing for UX is, is not not really effective. And if anything, is counterproductive. She points out how over the last couple of years, there's been certain people who have been evangelizing UX as everybody can do design, as everybody is a designer. You just do a workshop where everybody comes together and guess at the problems, you know, <laughs> put up solutions, guess at making screens, and boom, right? You have a you have a, a um, vote by committee or or design community or high high UX thing where everybody understands design. The problem with that is that it's not true. <laughs> the problem with that is that it, it it greatly reduces the need for UX specialists. It greatly, you know, disincentivizes people to recognize the expertise that goes into UX design. And what's important to recognize is that a lot of people assume, right, that design is about visuals. That design is, is something easy. That's art, right? And you know what they say about art? Anything is art. <laughs> but design is not art, right? Design is not about pure creative here's another problem right people assume that design is about just being creative that anybody can be creative but not everybody can be a designer and a great way that i you know can explain is is look at other teams and she she says this too she like other teams are not making other people do their work like marketing is not having a bunch of um um committees and and uh pitch you know, or you, what do you call it? Um, why well, I'm forgetting the freaking term? Like marketing is not having other workshops. There we go. Goodness, but <laughs> it's not having workshops where everybody's like, "Yes, come up with some email campaigns, and then we'll use all of your ideas." But no, marketing has a specific, you know, set of expertise where they recognize, okay, this, 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 what, this is what makes a good email campaign, and this is. What, this is what not. This is how you use data to inform that email campaign. This is how you analyze it. Blah 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 blah. So you don't create a whole workshop where everybody is dragged in to figure out what the marketing what, what the marketing team is going to do, right? If you did that, then there would be no point in having a marketing team. Everybody can just do that, but everybody has their own roles, right? You should you you shouldn't be wasting people's time, you know, saying hey yes you can do my job. <laughs> Not only does it does it show that your job is useless. But it also shows that you are useless, like that you have to bring other people in to do your work. That's basically like what what you what what message you're sending. And yes, you can't have collaboration. You can't have people be involved 
in your process. But you do so strategically, right? You do so in what's actually valuable. Like if you, if you want to get other people's ideas, then you create a design, uh, a design, or rather an ideation workshop, right? Where people are coming up with actual ideas, with high-level ideas, so that you can get an understanding of what people want, what people are thinking, this, that, and the other. Like for instance, she had an example of, you know, for a delivery thing, um, people might come up with ideas like, oh. What if we could deliver directly to people's door? What if we can, you know, um, notify people when we're in the neighborhood? What if we can blah, 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 right? These are high-level ideas. These are very valuable because it, it gives us a better way of coming up with the ideas and sitting down by ourselves and doing so. But recognize that you are not asking them to design the screens. You are not asking them to design the interfaces that will make this happen. You're not saying, okay, sit down and figure out how you can design a, a screen that, that notifies people of, you know, whether or not they're in the neighborhood and this, that, and the other, right? You're not asking them that. You can't ask them that. Like, if you do, what, what message are you sending? You're sending the message that wireframes are easy. That interaction design is easy. It's not easy. Trust me. This is a science here. Don't trust me. Go read a book about interaction design. You recognize that this it has an incredible amount of psychology of interaction of, of um, I don't want to say <laughs> I was going to define interaction design with interaction design. But no, it has an a incredible level of psychology of human computer interfaces. Um, and what I mean by that is like the is how you put together a, a, a again, I don't want to use a definition to d- describe the definition, but how you <laughs> how you make the human you know tell the computer what to do right there's an incredible amount of science that goes into that incredible amount of expertise and history that goes into it to that this that's a is a reason why that's a whole degree why that was a whole subset of, of things with um a degree i'm not saying of course that you need a degree to do it but just saying that it's a it's a recognized expertise it's a recognized science right there's all these things that you have to be aware of when creating interactions, when creating interfaces. And so by telling people, oh yes, just describe, go ahead and uh, an ideation workshop is, is you designing the screens, that is not conducive to good design. That is not conducive to actual collaboration. What that does is, is it misleads people into believing that well, number one, design is easy, that there's nothing to it, that you don't have to think about it, that you don't really you know, <laughs> have to apply any science or technique or strategy to it, this, that, and the other. Another example, what if there was a workshop for coding and anybody in the organization can come and tell the, tell the developers what tech stack we should use? You know, how to, how to put together some syntax and, and figure out whatever that you're trying to develop. What if there's a workshop for that? Would that be effective? Obviously not. You know, people will tell you, oh, yes, everybody can learn to code. Yes, everybody probably can. Well, no, probably not, actually. <laughs> and this is my, my own, you know, argument that not everybody can learn how to code, just like not everybody can learn how to play basketball. You know, there is, sure, you can understand the fundamentals, maybe, or maybe some aspects you can understand how basketball works, how code works, but not everybody's going to be able to go on the court and play basketball. Right? It's going to take a lot of time and effort in order to, for you to do that. And not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody is interested in doing that. So it's kind of ridiculous to say everybody should do it. Same thing for design. 
right? Not everybody can do this. Not everybody can be like going to court and figure out how to be empathetic to users. You might want people to, to be empathetic to users, but not everybody is. Like we all know that business, especially at a high level, very cutthroat, right? It, it brings a certain type of person in, like cutthroat people. Like if you have a, <laughs> a very you know competitive team and people are trying to get over on one another and all this other stuff, you know, in, in a certain landscape, in a certain area, certain context, that makes sense, right? It, it makes sense for people to have these skills and have this mindset. You can't ask these people to be empathetic and, and, and all this other stuff, right? Whether or not you want them to be, whether or not you think it's right, the fact of the matter is they're very good at their job. You don't want them to do your job. That's not their, that's not their purpose. Same thing for code. Right? Code takes a certain type of mindset, certain type of expertise, certain type of strategy. And you have to sit down and really figure out, okay, what, is, what does it mean to be a computer scientist, to be an engineer, to be a developer? All right? You can't say everybody can be an engineer. All you got to do is sit down in the workshop and, and throw together some, some, some code. Make a hackathon where everybody is coding. No. A hackathon is, is more efficient when people from different expertise come together and works with the developers to give them ideas of, you know, okay, I want to develop this. And then the developer is like, okay, let's just figure out how to do it, right? The person with a different expertise just brings in their knowledge, their ideas. And this goes into, finally, um... Vsauce's video on bias, on confirmation, not confirmation bias, but but, uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) It goes into the future of reasoning, where he talks about how, um, and I highly suggest you watch the video. He makes a way better, you know, argument and and explanation of this than than I can in the next few minutes. I'm going to be talking about it, but same thing for Debbie's article. Read that article. But yeah, Vsauce talks about how, or Michael (laughs) from Vsauce talk about how um humans have evolved to be biased right like we we often think that we're logical creatures and we claim that we're logical creatures and stuff like this but there's so many biases that stop us from being logical that stop us from being purely quote-unquote logical or reasonable whatever right and we have this idea that Okay, we have to fight against these ideas that we have to become more logical, more, more quote-unquote reasonable. That you have to reason better in order to, you know, do these things. But we have hundreds, hundreds upon hundreds of logical fallacies, of biases, of things that our brain does to make it difficult for us to be purely objective. And so he makes the argument that maybe this is a feature you know, not a bug, <laughs> right? Many times we view this as a bug, as oh, we have to fight these things and and um, figure out something else and and all this other stuff. But what that does, oftentimes, is it just makes us more prone to confirmation bias, more prone to certain types of these biases that are not as obvious. And we think we're logical. We think we're being, you know, we're reasoning. But in actuality, we're following we're falling under some other type of bias that we didn't recognize. And so instead, 
we should embrace the fact that we evolved this way. Because it is actually a very efficient way. And he actually shows that an organization, the reason why diversity is so powerful is because in organizations and places where people have differing opinions and they can come together, where they can communicate together to come up with a solution, they are often more efficient, more correct and and um you know when in collaboration than any individual is when they're trying to be objective because in a differing in a, in a diverse community we have people from different sides they're making the best argument they can about their side and it's more efficient that way right if you had to make an argument of why you know, bananas are healthy or something like that, right? You have somebody who takes one position and somebody who takes another position. And each person can do a lot of work to do a decent amount of work to get a solid argument of why their position makes sense. But if both people had to do both sides, right, had to figure out, you know, <laughs> all the pros and cons for, for whatever position they're trying to take, that's less efficient. That takes more effort. And it's more prone to mistakes. But if each person does the best they can to come up with their art side of the argument, then when they debate, when they come together and, and argue with each other, right, then one person is going to win. Or, better yet, they find the pros and cons of both sides. And they can weigh those pros and cons and say, okay, I recognize that there are cons here. Maybe bananas, you can't eat too many bananas, right? Because this happens then. Okay, I didn't recognize that. I put that in here. So now you have a pros and cons solution. Furthermore, it's a more social environment. We evolved to be social creatures. Like if anything, I believe, you know, you see this in uh, the Wait But Why article about the story of us. We evolved to be a, a collective organization. Our intelligence is not on the individual level. Our intelligence as a species, just like ants who are on a like their for ant their intelligence is on the colony level. Like if you look at any one ant, that ant is really dumb. Like that ant doesn't really it's not really special. But if you look at the colony, those ants are extremely intelligent. Like they can farm, they protect their their areas, they build all this other stuff, right? So on a collective level, they're incredibly intelligent, but not really on the individual level. Similarly to us, Yes, we have some level of intelligence on an individual level, but our intelligence really comes into play as a group, right? When we have a certain level of groups, usually around 20 or 30 people, anywhere from three on up to 20, maybe 50, right? And we, we see this oftentimes with a number of, of, of data, with a number of research, a number of history that shows this is like the, where a lot of our intelligence comes from. A lot of our amazing facts and, and, and inventions and, and progressions comes from. But when you go beyond that, then it becomes unwieldy. Then it becomes really chaotic. <laughs> and yes, we created some amazing things, but we also created some um, awful things. Right? Like wars. Right? This is, this is not a, this is, goes all the way back to you know, my, my thing of hunter-gatherer cultures. Where there was less violence. There was less... There was not an idea of war. Because there was a whole bunch of small communities. And they worked together. Right? They recognized 
another person. There was not this. There's this idea that people were territorial, but they were not. They were nomads, right? They moved around, and even if they moved around in a general area, they had such an idea of abundance. Like that was their natural idea of the world, where the world was abundant, and they, they would share with others. They would recognize, okay, you know, there's so much in this area we can share with another community, or Okay, there's, there's probably not enough for both of us to be, you know, in this community. So one of us moves moves out. And you have no problem moving out because you move out anyways. And you know you can find another place that is also like this. You can know you, know you can find there's, there's plenty of space, right? It's hard for us to imagine this today because we live in such a... Oftentimes it feels like a clustered world where we live in boxes, within boxes, within boxes, right? Like a house is a box. Your yard is a box just an open-ended box but still a box and then your 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 city your county your state these are just boxes right but when you drive out to the country or something like that right when you drive out and you see a whole bunch of people moving around you realize how big the world is it's hard to it's uh, i don't know if it's people are seeing this like i remember on my trip to florida a number of trips to florida but or in New York, either way, right? Where it's a 12-hour drive. And it would always amaze me that we can move from completely opposite sides of the country. Where I can go from Georgia all the way to New York in like 12, 15 hours. And I will cover all this space. And I would imagine, how would my ancestors do this? Like, there's no way. Like, it would take weeks, if not months, to go from Georgia to New York. To go from Georgia to the end of Florida. To Miami. Right? And that, that realization it really makes you appreciate the space that we have in this earth a little bit more. And so, with that realization, you can realize that these hunter-gatherer cultures had a huge, had a, in a default state of abundance. Where they realize, okay, it doesn't really matter if, if, you, if somebody else is already living here. Right? And if you, you know... You realize, okay, there they might be limited. We can't literally kill all the things here and eat uh, all this stuff. So you move to another location. This that's not a problem because you know there's going to be another great location. You know this, just like you know there's a there's always going to be a, a better house, right? There's always going to be another Walmart. You don't have to go to this specific Walmart. You know there's another Walmart down the street, or in, in another state. Similarly, you know they have a, a, a an environment where. They recognize this environment is rich, yes, in resources. But there's another environment that's also rich in resources. So there's no problems. And where was I going with this? <laughs> oh, yeah, so, so the idea of... Um, I went way off track to what I, what I meant to talk about. But what I wanted to bring up <laughs> with this idea of bias is that... Bias allow, allows us to have specialization. Just like we recognize that specialization is a huge boon to humanity, specialization is a huge boon to humanity's ideas. Right? The idea that you can be purely objective and logical and reasoning is, is, is almost delusional. Because we know that we can never be purely objective. Because we can never know everything. In order to be purely objective, you have to know everything. You have to realize how, where and how you're wrong or, or all the variables in the situation. But you don't. Like, science is not purely objective. Science is the, 
the the best story you have now is is recognizing that we did a whole lot of research and experimentation to, to to realize that this specific thing happens again and again if we do this set of things like if we do this set of patterns or behaviors or or um circumstances or whatever this creates a a a repeatable result we call that objective because it's repeatable but it's not actually objective because we recognize in science that if you do this again you know once you learn more variables down the line in the future sometime this might change like the idea of um of uh Biology, right? This perfect example. Like we thought the world worked a certain way because yes, we could repeat certain things, but then you re- you realize there were there were atoms in there. <laughs> so at first, you know, you had some some the science of of disease, where people thought, okay, the reason people got sick is because you know they were around other people that got sick, right? So sickness. There's a science to this. Sickness can get more sickness. So, and this is repeatable, right? This is obvious. But the reason for that was like, okay, maybe it's because God. Maybe it's because some aether energy. Maybe it's because there's some invisible thing that passes between the two. But you don't really, you can't really explain it, right? You can't really measure it. But then, you know, eventually we came up with it. We, we were able to see bacteria. We were able to see, okay, there were actually little, little living things that pass on you know from one area to another area and that's what you know that's that's the vector of disease and then we were able to go further and figure out the cells in there and then we'll be able to go further and see, see the atoms and so on and so forth right as our tools get better as our ability to measure the world gets better then we become more and more objective but there's not an end state to objective like today people have this argument that we're coming to to the end of science the end of discovering things because we can't imagine what's lower than the than, than, than the Planck scale. There's nothing else there. We can't imagine what's bigger than, you know, the universe. And yet, other scientists who are, I, will, I would say more logical, recognize that, no, we, we are not at the end of science. There's, there's so much more to discover. The fact that you think you're at the end is the real problem. Is the real issue because it shows that it shows the same problem of, of people before like people when they went um, with the idea of sickness they thought they knew for sure they thought they were completely objective of the idea that you know getting sick comes from other sick people and that's it and when somebody came up with the idea of you know these these small organisms passing on things that you can get sick from dirty water people were like no way no way, absolutely not. Or this idea that you can get life from um, from dead things. It was like, no way, absolutely not. There's, no, there's absolutely no way that's possible. All right? But when we, you know, measured more and we went further, we realized, oh, we were, we were completely wrong. There was so much more to discover. That's the same thing with science. That's the same thing with reality. That's the same thing with almost every, pretty much every single idea you think you're at the end but really you're not there's always more to discover and that's a good thing you know what that means that means there's more to discover there's more ideas it's it's a world of abundance
So Vsauce talks about how the future of reasoning is going to be centered around can we create systems and tools and, and organizations where we have instead well he, he focuses on things like government, right? Where we think we can hire politics politicians to be the to be the ones that, you know, figure out to be the objective ones and, and make the good policies. But we we see now that no, this 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 doesn't happen. What happens with politicians is that these people just, you know, hearken to one one set of ideas and claim that is the objective truth. When actually they're actually falling into the the, the, the bias problem. But again, like I what like I said in the early phases, the problem with bias is not that you have bias. The problem is that you don't recognize that you have bias. The problem is that you don't want to admit that you might be wrong. And so if you don't want to admit that, if you don't even recognize that you can be wrong, then you're not going to be open to other ideas. You're not going to be open to the fact that other people have another bias that you can learn from, that you can come together with your pros and cons. And this is what we need to recognize. So he points out that we can have a randomly selected, you know, um, voting kind of thing. I forgot the exact term, but basically instead of having politicians that you have to vote for and all this other stuff, instead everybody, anybody can be in the government, can be voting on policies, can be making these policies. And because anybody can do it, we have an incentive to make sure that everybody has access to the right information. Another problem with um, with our current way of doing things is that there's an incentive to pay people off, right? To corrupt people into believing that this one thing is the truth. This one thing is the way to go. Imagine that this is something I wanted to bring up earlier. I'm not sure if it's necessary, but I still want to talk about it. It's like, imagine if a blacksmith was like super super good at being a blacksmith but then they thought i can farm too i can farm with my blacksmithing tools i can make clothes with my blacksmithing tools like the the, the blacksmith is the only way to go that's the only future to live imagine if, if we tried to do that that wouldn't work that's obvious right and yet we do the same thing with politics we do the same thing with republican or democrat or with this that and the other i think this is the one way to go and if you don't do this, you're wrong. <laughs> right? If you don't do this, then there's no other way to go. You're living a bad life or you you you're you're stupid or you're immoral or whatever, right? We see this with societies. We see this with the idea of democracy, the idea of capitalism. We think this is the only way to go. And anybody else is wrong. Anybody else is a communist or blah 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 blah. Right? But if we instead recognize that, okay, capitalism has its pros and cons, right? I can form up the best argument with that, that I can about capitalism, but I also have to be open to the fact that other people might have another system that might actually work really well. And when we come together, we can find the pros and cons. We can find how to improve the overall system. Like for me, hunter-gatherer cultures, they were filthy egalitarian. Some people even consider them the early communists. Because <laughs> nobody owned every, anything. Everybody shared everything. And they worked really well. So when people say, 
oh, there's no examples of communism, you can look back to 150,000 years of human history where people didn't have an idea of property. People didn't have an idea of personal, of uh, private property, right? People shared things and it worked really well. Why? Because there was no inherent power structure. There's nobody over them telling them what to do and how to do it. I'm going to have to end this soon because they're, they're over there about to cut the grass on the other lawn. But, and I'm about an hour in. But <laughs> Yeah, so the idea of, of bias is an incredible thing. So I really hope that we can create you know societies and structures to, to emulate this. To realize that, okay, bias is actually how we evolved. It's how, you know, it's where our collective intellect is. It's like our brain. Right? Our brain has a number of different specializations where one thing thinks about this, one thing is focused on this, and it comes together and creates an incredibly intellectual, intelligent being, or at least ideally. We need to do the same thing with reality. It's like we're, we're, we're like ineffectually schizophrenic. It's like we're attacking ourselves in our minds. Like only one one part of our mind can be right, and so we try to kill the rest of our of our personalities. Like that's not how it works. We have a number of different personalities within ourselves. We have a number of you know facets of our cells that work together to create a unified whole. That's how we need to work as as a society. So I didn't even get to talk about <laughs> a few of the other things I, I wanted to mention. So I, I'll see if I can go through it real quick. I only have seven minutes. I'm at the hour limit and I don't want to go over that because I'm trying to eat but anyways um zero IP the idea of intellectual property is very um messed up like you just look up uh um shoot what's the freaking thing called let's see if I can pull it up while I while I look that up let me let me mention my other ideas that for BTMP for my business you know I ended up having to do an application and I realized that uh when it they had a a problem about um i mean i'm sorry they had a question about okay what's your business model so before i was thinking of doing a membership or something like that or even an isa income share agreement where i say okay we're going to improve your life and after we improve it you know you give us the a, a portion of your you know maybe 10 percent or whatever of your savings i mean not your savings but of your profit of how you change like if you if we improved your salary then boom you can give us you know um, 10% of what of, of your improvement or something like that, right? And that will pay for the product. That was one idea. But um, another idea is, you know, membership option. That's very obvious. But then I realized that or I recognized that over the last week, I really, I think I talked about this before. I really want to focus on the idea of uh, targeting impoverished people. Targeting people who are struggling with money, with resources and stuff like that. Because that's where I live, right? That's what I'm super experienced with, if you will. And so, for me, like, the idea that... Um, and this is tough because these, a lot of people have no money, right? They say, oh, don't make apps for homeless people. You need to quote somebody else. But I really want to focus on this because I think that's a huge, huge problem that needs to be solved. Like, just because we're poor doesn't mean we can't... This is a problem with capitalism, right? Like, if you don't have money, you can't participate in the marketplace. But I, I don't think that's right. So I want my organization to help these people. And so I figured, why not do a, a crowdfunding campaign? But 
you're not even targeting people you um poor people or people who are in poverty you're targeting businesses you're targeting high income people you say hey give to this crowdfunding campaign and actually help people and i'm going to go a step further i'm not going to make us a, a, a non-profit because a non-profit you can write off on your taxes and people can be like oh you're just doing this for the tax I want to prove with my organization that humanity is in inherently good, right? I know this is risky, but this is the whole point of me wanting to start my own business is because I want to prove that humanity is inherently good, that we can help each other. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to base my entire business off of this. So I'm going to go to people and be like, if you really want to make a difference in the world, here's how. Because a lot of times people don't know how they can make a difference. They, they do things and, and hope it does. But I'm going to show them exactly how they can make a, a, a positive difference. I'm going to show them the data. I'm going to show, hey, if you give this amount of money to this campaign, this is going to help this amount of this, this person or these, this community. And you're going to see month by month, week by week, how their life is being improved. So you can make measurable impact. And a portion of that is going to go to the, you know, the, the, the company. And a portion of that is going to go to the, directly to the individual, depending on their needs. Um, so that's my business model. And I think it's going to be incredible. It's going to be super risky, but I think it's going to be incredible. All right. And furthermore, this, this creates other kind of uh, things that uh, of things around transparency that I wanted to create anyways. The idea of showing you where and how your money is, is going. So... Oh my gosh, so, so sorry for this wind. Alright, so <laughs> I, I want to talk about this further, but I got three minutes left. Okay, so um, this idea of zero IP comes from the video. Creators shouldn't own their uh, IP. What, why did you do this, Google? It's completely, completely refreshed. Okay, here we go. Creators shouldn't own the creations, and here's why. So it's a 45-minute video by a YouTube, YouTuber by the name of Unique Namasaurus. <laughs> Very funny name, unique name of source, and he has a you know video before that called "You Hate All These Companies for the Same Reason," and he points out in the video it's, it's because IP, because with IP you can create an IP is literally, literally a legal monopoly. All right, so it's the system where you are legally allowed. Oh my gosh, it's so loud! Like seriously, what up? <laughs> so sorry. Okay, so it's the system that you are legally allowed. To create a monopoly around a specific idea, right? And this is, this has been a an argument for centuries, all right? Since the idea of ideas <laughs> and and the, the idea of intellectual property and the idea of private property and all these other stuff, right? So this is not a new idea, but it's I think it's very important to to talk about this now because now, unlike before in human history, we have the means of giving recognition. And allowing distribution like before before there is uh, it makes sense why you would create an IP because you know people will spend a lot of time and money or actually I, I would say wouldn't and here's why okay so <laughs> I'm trying to you know what I'm just gonna have to make another video because just like a couple seconds left well go watch that video I'll make another you know talk up to, to talk about this and um, yeah as always thanks for listening <laughs> Uh, let me know what you think about everything else I talked about and uh, we'll get into it at another day tomorrow most likely or later today maybe we'll see
Yeah, see you. Bye-bye.